Welcome back to the Cycling Tips Podcast, everybody. I'm Kaylee Fretz, and we are... Where are we, Ronan? Uh, th- as far as I can work out, we're about six kilometers from the top of the Col de Porte. We thought it would be, uh, be fun, this episode, to actually kick things off from the side of the Tour de France. We're literally standing on the side of the road. Uh, we walked out of the press room, down about 500 meters or so. And we're just going to start the episode right now. The race isn't over yet, so I should say that right now we have no idea, well, what's going to happen in the bike race. <laughs> but right this very second, Ronan, where are we? What's happened so far? Well, we're, I should say, first of all, that there was an option to go to the finish line, but <laughs> I'm delighted we're not because it meant going up a, a pretty tall, a pretty high um, cable car, which, yeah. Wasn't exactly top of my to-do list getting into a cable car. Well, yeah, Ronan doesn't like heights. <laughs> uh, we're, That's terrified laughter. <laughs> it is. We're about, as I said, about six kilometers to go at the moment. Uh, Anthony Perez from Confidence still has a, about a two-minute gap on the yellow jersey group, from what I can make out in my very, very limited French. But uh, it appears like he has two, a gap of about two minutes on the chasing yellow jersey group. Uh, and we're sort of waiting to see what happens. We have pretty little idea what's happening right now because we can't actually see anything. We're just waiting on uh, reports from some of the cars and that are going by on their way up the, the climb. And yeah, we're uh, pretty much in the dark here at the moment. I mean, so just so everybody at home knows how this works. There goes the motorcycle. There, there actually is a car that just drove by a couple minutes ago that uh, yells out to all the people standing on the side of the road, what's happening? They literally, they're just sort of, not a, not a live race call, they're kind of repeating themselves. They're saying who's in first, who's in second, what the time gaps are, things like that. So we have some idea uh, what's going on, but we can't get our video to load and uh, there's no television here. And so we're, yeah, we're in the dark. It was funny, we could hear the announcer for about a kilometer. But he just kept repeating the same thing <laughs> over and over and over again. Yeah, it's a super cool climb. You'll see it on television, obviously. But the um, it just disappears in the clouds at the moment. It's it's a uh, unsettled weather, as as we say in the mountains. And you know, I've had a bunch of people ask me whether the race sort of feels normal this year. Um, feels more normal today than I think a lot of other days. There's a lot of people up here, but it's still not quite what this would have been a few years ago. It's like 75% maybe of what it would have been a couple years ago. It's it's pretty darn close though. And and the excitement level here is already sort of starting to build. You got people sitting around with their yellow hats. The caravan came by a, quite a while ago. In fact, the caravan is all standing right near us. They came out to watch the race as well. The caravan being like the 45 minute parade that comes by about an hour and a half ahead of the race, which is driven by 19 to 23 year olds of France, just having a, a grand old summer. They're standing a couple hundred yards away from us and we're actually get to watch the bike race today. So that's exciting for them. Yeah, like, uh, this is my first time covering the Tour de France and probably I've, I've seen stages in the past, but just, you know, started in remote locations. But from what I can picture from TV, where we're standing today, in all the years might have been, you know, crowds three and four deep. Uh, whereas today the crowds are, you know, there isn't a whole pile of space to stand in. They're one deep. They're one deep, yeah. <laughs> but what I, what I think from looking around and listening closely, it seems to be like all the people from France who would normally come to the tour are here. It's just international visitors who, you know, can't unfortunately get here just as much. Yeah, fair number of French accents, obviously. Uh, heard some Spanish earlier, you know, like the Dutch have come down in some numbers. But very few Brits because the quarantine rules have not yet been relaxed. I think that happens next week. Uh, 
the, yeah, the day Ronan goes back, <laughs> not a lot of Americans, obviously. And, and you know, there, there is a, particularly in the last decade, there's been a very international feel to the side of the roads and at the Tour de France. There's a ton of people that come here for their holidays. Less so, less so this year. Anyway, let's take a brief, brief pause uh, and just wait for the riders to get closer. Running, you have been to the Tour de France before. You weren't covering it, uh, but you've been here. Ooh, we got the one of the crease cars and organizer cars, some more motorcycles. Tell me about the last time you were uh, at the Tour de France. The last time I was at the Tour was actually thinking back, and I think it was 2007, uh, and I was down in south south east of France as well, down in Marseille, trying to trying to make my way in the French amateur scene. And uh, the one of the stages finished into Marseille, and myself and Dan Martin rode out to. Dan was riding for BC the Palm Marseille at the time, and we rode out to see the, the one of the final climbs of the stage. Rode back into the town we were staying in afterwards and seen that Discovery Channel were staying there. Alberto Contador was on the team at the time. I think he was in the yellow jersey. Maybe he hadn't taken it yet. He certainly won the tour that year. Uh, but yeah, we uh, seen Sean Yates sort of come out of the team bus, and Dan went over and hadn't yet become Dan Martin, so to speak, but went over and introduced himself as, hi, I'm Dan Martin. You may know me from such races as, or something to that effect. So he was uh, already fairly confident he was going to be one of the best riders in the world at that point. I like that story. You know, you see, um, there's that big kerfuffle about giving bottles out at races uh, not that long ago. And well, Ryder got disqualified for it, right? That when you're here and you see the little little kids running around and and they're just absolutely stoked it, it does it brings that particular issue into focus right oh there's a i think they're here i'm just going to cut off what i was saying there we got we have a helicopter which is usually the sign of a bike rider this would be perez i believe still up front we'll we'll give you a real time time check for this should we try to get a bottle yeah yeah Chapeau, chapeau, you'll need a hat. You need to get a hat from him. <laughs> I think some things about being a Tour de France motorcycle pilot would be really fun. And some of it, most of it, would be driving around at 13 kilometers an hour. Here he comes. Oh. That's a hell of a suffer face he's got on. Oh, and they're right behind him. He is not long for this world. Micah is done. Bogachar is going. We literally just saw the attack. It was right in front of us. Micah swung off. Bogachar hit the front, stood up, and he's off. Oh, Woodsy! Mike Woods in the breakaway today. He just got caught and passed by the leaders group. Let's see if we can see up the hill. Of course, by now. Of course, by now, you listening at home know what happened. We don't know what happened yet. We have no idea what happened. I'm going to guess Pogacar takes time. That's my guess. Yeah, it was incredible. We literally just seen him launch his attack just as he passed us. Rafael Micah pulled off, swung off from what we imagine must have been a pretty big turn. The group was well thinned out. We've seen a lot of the KOM contenders already dropped. 
And just as he passed us, Bogatia launched his, launched his attack. Now we should walk up. <laughs> uh, these guys go pretty fast uphill, don't they? <laughs> like the dropped guys go go really fast uphill. <laughs> they they, they kind of make it look a bit flat. Yeah. I mean, we're on a section that's probably what eight percent, seven percent, and they're just ticking it over. Interesting that Pogacar did not choose a particularly difficult moment to go. He just chose the moment where Rafa Micah pulled off. Like, this is not the hardest part of the climb by any stretch of the imagination. And in fact, there's a, there's a little flat part right in front of us that he would have gone into. Maybe, again, we don't know what happened. Maybe that meant they stayed on his wheel. We're gonna find out when we go watch the bike race later. All right, that's it from us on the side of the road at the Tour de France. We're gonna, we're gonna step into the rest of the podcast now. Back to the future where we know what happened. Before we go anywhere, we do have a few brief words from Continental. We already announced the return of the Cream Sidewall GP5000. If you haven't had a chance, check out Ronan's article on Cycling Tips. The Continental GP5000 Cream is now a full-time addition to the GP5000 range. And if you're looking for a performance tire with a splash of stylish color, the GP5000 Cream is your choice. They still have all the handmade features that the black or transparent sidewall GP5000 tires have, like black chili, laser grip, Vectrin, and active comfort technology. For you, our Cycling Tips podcast listeners, we have two sets of GP5000 Cream tires to give away. All you have to do is tell us at least three of the teams riding Conti tires at this year's tour. If you're part of Velo Club, drop your answer in the Slack channel. There's a lot of them in there. Uh, you should be able to spot the correct answer and just repeat it at this point. <laughs> There's quite a few. Otherwise, tweet your answer to me, at Kaylee Fretz, and I will pass it on to whoever picks who wins these tires. We'll draw the winners at the end of the tour. Thanks to Continental for sponsoring today's episode. All right, Ronan. It's, uh, well, it's about 45 minutes later. We will cut out the, the boring 45 minutes in the middle there. About 45 attacks later. About 45 attacks later, and we have gone and watched the, the end of the bicycle race. We are now heading down the mountain, uh, trying to get to Poe, which is where we're staying tonight. And uh, before anybody yells at me on the internet for driving while podcasting, I wouldn't exactly call what we're doing driving <laughs> at the moment. <laughs> we are we are being passed by walkers. <laughs> uh, we're being passed by cyclists. We are being passed by sausage Citroen 2CV dolly cars <laughs> who get a police escort for some reason. I I'm pretty sure they got the police escort because there is a good chance their brakes will fail <laughs> down this mountain. <laughs> we did. We just, we all, so we're all, all of this whole line of cars is Tour de France cars and we all just got moved over so that the Citroens, the Citroen 2 CVs can go by, which is the Cochonou car. If you've never been to the Tour de France, they, um, Cochonou is a sausage company and they chuck tiny sausages at you. So we got, uh, we got passed by them. Oh, almost just lost your phone out the window. <laughs> <laughs> 
So anyway, that's what we're doing. We are slowly heading down we, the mountain We just got here. passed by a dog in a basket. There's a dog in a basket that just went by us. So that's where we are at the moment. We're like, uh, we're like a third of the way down. And like I said, headed to Poe, which is where we're going to be staying tonight. Ronan, what a finish. Uh, first of all, you know I like to uh, pat myself on the back here. I was almost right about my Carapaz pick. Granted, I feel like, you know, you're basically got a one in three shot <laughs> picking a GC contender today. But in your defense, you also picked Godou, if I remember right. That's true. I got three and four today. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Bronze and the chocolate medal. Yeah, It's the, the movie star award almost. The <laughs> Third and fourth. <laughs> so uh, walk us through last couple K there. What, what, what went down? Yeah, so where we were standing was actually, we found out since was at about eight kilometers to go. Uh, exactly where we've seen Rafael Mica pull off and and Pogaccia launched his first attack. We sort of hot footed or hot feeded it, hot footed it up to the press room then, uh, where we just caught the final three kilometers. And, and by the time we got there, it had already been whittled down to just Pogaccia, Carapaz, and Vinigo. And we've seen Pogaccia sort of lift the, the tempo on a few occasions. Couldn't really call them proper attacks, could we? But um, he certainly was sort of, you know, it was almost like he was sort of taunting the other two riders there, putting in semi-attacks. Uh, but the, the, I don't believe the pace was actually all that high because uh, David Godou in, in fourth place on the road there was, his, his the distance to Godou was, was staying remarkably stable at, at 50 seconds or so until finally we seen inside the final kilometer, Carapaz launched an attack to go for the stage win. Uh, he did get a bit of distance, but Pogaccia was very quickly on him, and, and it looked for a point, for, it looked for a time that Vinigo had been ha, had been distanced and, and was going to lose time to the to his other two rivals on the podium. Uh, but in the end up, he clawed his way back just in time for Carapaz, or just in time for Pogaccia to launch a stage-winning attack uh, to take take the win in the yellow jersey ahead of Vinigo in second place, with Carapaz slightly distanced in third, and all that now means that. Bogaccia has a, a lead of five minutes and 39 seconds on the GC to Vinigo, who is in second. And then we have four seconds back to Carapaz in third place. Ronan, you haven't done something like this before. How are, how are you feeling right now? The Tour de France is anything but normal. Even this year, everybody is telling me it's much smaller than, than previous years, although it's a lot better than last year. Um, but yeah, it's still for a first timer on the Tour, it's still... Uh, incredible just to see even just the amount of work that goes on in the background like it's the, just the press room for example there every, every day the press room is assembled uh, sometimes it's in a you know in a, in a proper community hall or a leisure center or something today on the top of a Pyrenean mountain they had these huge gazebos effectively big tents big big tents yeah uh, but they were set up exactly as we would see would have seen yesterday in, in the uh, leisure center just outside the the finishing town yesterday and when you go inside there there's literally rows upon row of of uh desks and and chairs for you know the press to work off of but every day you've got your wi-fi set up there you've got the um the, the buffet on the side for, of a mountain we should say yeah. <laughs> literally on the side of a mountain today we had pizza and some sort of pastries uh, for for the press as well and yeah we haven't been doing many press buffet ratings um, mostly because there's like press buffet isn't really a thing at, at this point in time um, mostly because of the Rona and just sort of you know like getting sort of communal food is not really a thing right now so if any of you missed those 
they will be back for next year's Tour de France. It's one of many things that we are also missing here at the Tour, but unfortunately, uh, it's just not quite the same. I mean, Ronan, sometimes you get like literally a sit down dinner for, or sit down lunch, I should say, for the press buffet. Like we're, we're never gonna get that this, this year, no way. Probably so, just as well with the amount of eating we're doing outside of the, the press room. <laughs> True. Well, we've got a runaway 2CV. <laughs> All right, Ronan, we're off the mountain. We're still stuck behind the chickens. Uh, I just remarked about this earlier. I think you might have put it on the Instagram or something. But the chickens, there's four chicken floats, and they're chasing chicken tenders around France at the moment. It just seems it just seems rude to me to like stick the four chicken floats right behind the chicken tenders. I should probably explain these chickens are they're not actual real chickens. They're not actually real chicken tenders either, but they're they're chickens the size of houses. Yeah, they're big chickens. They're, yeah. they're large. They're large chickens. All right. If they were real, we would be real worried. <laughs> you know that old uh the old what was it like would you rather fight a what was it a a, a horse-sized chicken or I forget what the opposite one was. A chicken-sized horse doesn't sound scary at all, really. (laughs) Okay, that's enough about chickens and horse-sized chickens and whatever else. Let's talk more about today's stage. So, just a little run-through of the finale. Where do we stand GC-wise? I mean, the big question has been second and third. And Pogaccio looked, again, really, really strong today. Chris Room said the other morning that um, he thinks he has it, and I think... You know, that doesn't take a tactical genius to, to be able to figure that one out. Uh, I think I think he has it. I think it's a barring something going very wrong, he has it. But that second third is really close now after today, right? Yeah, it's only four seconds between Vinigo and, and Carapaz in, in third place there. And that's, you know, we've seen Carapaz make a move in the final kilometers today. It looked like he had distanced Vinigo. And it, it did look as well that he was more concerned about distancing Vinigo than really... He, he didn't seem concerned at all about Pogaccia. It, you know, obviously he would have been thinking stage one there, but he was checking over his shoulder continually and and looking straight past Pogaccia, who was straight in his wheel, right in his wheel, to see where Vinigo was and and was that gap opening. Uh, and then you know the rules sort of reversed and that Vinigo made his way back onto um, Pogaccia's wheel and and then sort of was able to follow Pogaccia almost in, in the in the closing meters and and open up a gap. On, on Carapaz and, and opened up uh, just it only, it only took one second today but that extends his lead in the GC to four seconds so yes it is very very close yes four seconds I, I have a question do we think Richard Carapaz do we think he was a, a bit of a re- reverse bluff today because he looked he looked awful most of the way up that climb he looked just grimacing all over the bike like just did not look good and i was just kind of waiting in those last kilometers for okay well as soon as someone punches it he's gone right and 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 vindigo is is gonna take a significant lead here and then the exact opposite happened and it turns out that he was able to he was able to really go for it in that final kilometer and and distanced vindigo for a little while so do we think it was a is a fake face. I mean, I feel like Carapaz is usually more stoic looking than that. He doesn't, he's not Nairo Quintana levels of, of, you know, like blank face, but 
usually doesn't gurn quite so much, uh, particularly when he apparently was feeling okay. Yeah, well, you know, he initially went and I was very surprised to see him make the move because he did look to be the writer of, of those three in, in that leading group. He looked to be suffering the most. Uh, and, you know, for every bit that Pogaccia seemed to be just sitting there and, and smiling almost. He was smiling. <laughs> well, okay, so there are riders who when they when they kind of like grimace, yeah, it looks like a smile. But I don't, don't think he was grimacing. So I, I think he was smiling. Because Carapaz was looking back at him, right? Looking back at him. They had like 15 meters on Vindigur. Vindigu. I'm going to say this slightly differently every single time for the entire podcast. They were looking back at him. And and every it felt well, like we every time. Him, well, we just call him Jonas. Jonas. There we go. <laughs> we can say Jonas. Every time Carapaz would look back, Pogacar would give him like a little... Yeah, yeah, we're good. Well, we're good. Smile, like well, yeah. Okay, keep going. I'm happy about this. I'm about to win the Tour de France. I feel, I feel great. It was a little. It did look like a little smile. I'm, I'm going with smile. It may have been a grimace, but I think it was a little smile today. Yeah, I think it was kind of a smile as well because it does seem to get bigger every time. <laughs> <laughs> every time Carapaz looked back, and Carapaz was pulling all sorts of faces on the front. It, in fairness. Or, you know, in fairness to Carapaz, whenever he makes an attack, he does look great on a bike. He can stand. Yeah. He didn't. I don't think he did it today, but he usually makes his attacks in the drops, going up the climbs. And and there, is there anything cooler than attacking in the drops while climbing? No, I mean full Pantani style. Yeah, I'm I'm totally into it. Yeah, sometimes I do it at home. Um, it doesn't work as well for some reason. Yeah, perhaps it's because I'm going nine kilometers an hour, and uh, Carapaz is going like twenty three up a mountain. Man, they go fast. We'll reiterate that. We said it earlier when we were standing next to them. Man, they go fast. Well, Ronan, you are a tech reporter at Cycling Tips. So, um, tech question. No pressure. Today, today, Tade Pogacar was on rim brakes. Mm-hmm. But most of the rest of the race, he's been on disc brakes. Can we classify this Tour de France as a Tour de France 1 on disc brakes because it would be the first one. There has never been a Tour de France one on disc brakes before. And like I said, he's been on that, was it the V3 RS mm-hmm. for most of the race with discs. And then today, Big Mountain Day. Is that like a really old Ian Stannard? Who was that? <laughs> <laughs> Some guy in an old sky kit. <laughs> so today. Uh, rim brakes. What do we think? Is it, what, how do we classify this Tour de France? Well, Pogaccia has a, today's the first day road rim brakes. Is it? I, it's, it's the first day I've seen yeah. him on rim brakes. Yes, and, and I have and not been just, like. Just to reiterate, you do see very, very little when you're at the Tour de France. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so but, we could be wrong about that one, but I'm, I'm kind of sure mm. he uh, the last major mountain stage where he took time, he was on discs. Yeah, yeah. and th- that's what I was going to say is that. Okay, he, he took another two or three seconds today and, and won the stage, but everywhere else that he is, um, or every other stage apart from the stage five time trial, he has been riding disc brakes. So we can safely say at the end of this tour, if Pogacar goes on to win, that disc, the, the tour wasn't lost on disc brakes. <laughs> <laughs> Whether it was won or not on disc brakes, I think I, I personally would say, yes, this is the first time the tour has been won with disc brakes. Uh, but, you know, we're, we're, we're not going to be able to come away from this tour now and say it's the first tour that was won by a rider who solely used disc brakes. Um, 
But I would add to that as well is that I think had Pogaccia been riding with no brakes, he probably still would have won the Tour de France. So sort of, sort Drum of a brakes, yeah, <laughs> sort of a mute point. But he, he has ridden most of these stages with disc brakes. Surprised when I actually spoke to Pogaccia's personal mechanic uh, in in the in Brittany there before the, the before the first stage, we checked out. Pogacha's uh, V3 RS and his K1 time trial bike in, in two videos we did for the Cycling Tips YouTube channel. And Pogacha's mechanic said that he was almost certain that Pogacha would ride the full Tour de France on disc brakes because since I think it was, I think he said since the UAE Tour, Pogacha has been training and racing solely on, on the disc brake variant of that bike. Hmm. Uh, and he said he was a fan now of disc brakes and uh, the idea of of sort of shifting back and forth wasn't one he was he was uh, keen to, to the idea of shifting back and forth between disc brakes and rim brakes is, is something he has done in the UAE tour earlier in the year but he was keen to sort of stick with with the one option now because it is slightly different like if you make the change from from one brake setup to the other um, no, I'm not saying which is better please don't attack me <laughs> i'm just saying it is a different it see, takes you a second or two to get see, used to you you were so close uh, yeah i'm just you I'm, were so I'm close to getting such a big hole here just you're so close to getting your big check from big disc <laughs> and now they're not going to send it and now what are we going to do now how are we going to pay for the end of the tour de france running i don't think we're yeah i think we're going to have to like walk and <laughs> no i would agree with you i i think it's going to be the first tour on disc breaks um I can't say I really care <laughs> either way, but you know, it's a, it's, it's a momentous thing. And it's one of those things where it, it feels like it probably should have happened a while ago, mm. but because we had such dominance from one particular team and that particular team happens to also be basically the last real holdout, uh, on the, on the disc break front, rim break front, we haven't had one yet. So this will be it. Yeah. Uh, and one more point that is that both rim and disc brakes have lost this Tour de France because it is almost certain at this point that Pogaccia is, is going to win. So every other team riding every other type of disc, every other type of brake is going to lose. Correct. I mean, when it comes to the disc rim debate, like 100%, doesn't matter what else happens in this podcast, that's what people are going to be tweeting yes. me about tomorrow. For sure. That's what Mikey's going to take for the sound bite. Right? Oh, oh, absolutely. Yeah. All right. Moving on. The KOM battle which, uh, well, we've had our eye on, we've had our eye on all week and all last week and, and remains, I think, the, the closest, tightest, most interesting fight in the race. Now, uh, I haven't actually looked at the sheet. You've got the sheet in front of you. But when, when everybody came by us, Mike Woods was the furthest up the road, right, of the sort of contenders for that. While Poles, who came by in the polka dots, came by a little bit behind. So was Woods high enough that he got any polka dot points today? So yeah, Woods was the best positioned and interestingly, earlier in the stage, we've seen Israel Startup Nation do quite a lot of riding and we sort of assumed, first of all, that that was to, to put Woods into contention for the for the mountains points on, on the three climbs. But we've seen on the very first of those climbs, they called a pair of sword that um, Quintana and White Poles went on the attack and it, it looked as if Woods was like happy to let them ride away and at that point, we sort of assumed that Michael Woods must have been going for the stage, which 
would have been quite a good tactic given that there was double points on the finishing climb you know perhaps save your energy on those earlier climbs and try and make up for it with with a high result on the stage um but on that first climb, call it press third actually none of the kom contenders took any points because the breakaway just had too high an advantage so the six points offering places uh, were taken by the by the breakaway on the second climb of the day the cat one called the Valeron azette uh white poles actually managed to pick up four points there and and there quintana was just behind him picking up two points and then on the final climb again none of the kom contenders we were thinking about coming into today's stage picked up any points so to answer your question in a very long roundabout way <laughs> michael woods picked up no points today but what did happen was pogacha won the stage won that final climb got the double points and has now moved him up into second place in the mountains competition on 67 points he's one point ahead of both nairo quintana and michael woods and 11 points behind white poles who has uh, not only kept his lead in the king of the mountains competition but slightly extended it all right i mean i don't like that the that the polka dots are often taken by the winner of the bike race like does does the winner of the bike race really need polka dots as well i don't know what i don't know how you would fix that or how you would change that um that competition maybe like more points on little tiny hills or something like that decrease the number of points that are available in mountaintop finishes and increase the number of points that are available pretty much everywhere else. I think what happens then though is that we end up with riders who you wouldn't really consider to be the king of the mountains. True. Winning the king of the mountains. I mean, realistically, the rider that wins the Tour de France is usually the king of the mountains. Like if you were like, okay, which is who's the best climber in this race? That's Pogacar, right? Yeah. So, so maybe it works. Maybe it's just maybe it's just how it should be and how it is, and we don't need to change anything. I, I think though this year it's. Like White Poles, Nairo Quintana, Michael Woods. It's and a good crew. It's it's a good yeah. good uh, real top climbers fighting out for the King of the Mountains. And now you've got Tadej Pogacar in the in the middle of that contest as well. Whether or not he goes for it um, will probably be decided by what happens in tomorrow's stage. Whether he's in another GC battle, uh, but certainly at least in terms of the names contesting it today or this year, and and the way that those riders are going about taking on this King of the Mountains competition, I think is a real breath of fresh air and into the competition that sometimes gets a lot of slack. Uh, there's a lot of haters out there for the King of the Mountains competition, but you know, it's, it's one of those that there's no real good solution as we just, as we just heard there now, you kind of, if you make it too focused on the biggest mountains, then you end up with the guy who's wearing the yellow jersey, can't wear the King of the Mountains jersey and, and the competition is a bit lost. Whereas if you dilute it too much and have it on the smaller climbs, then you end up with someone who isn't perhaps the, the purest of climbers winning it. So uh, I'm happy to see this year that we have we have a good battle for it among some of the best riders. And as we've seen today, Quintana and Poles attacking, you know, with 60 kilometers to go. Awesome. Yeah. It, yeah. It, nah, it's, it's like I said, it's, I think it's been one of the most exciting things about this entire Tour de France. One other thing has come to our attention, just uh, emerging from past couple of stages, is actually Rigoberto Uran and Peo Bilbao have both been warned uh, over uh, adopting illegal riding positions during the race. Uh, I think both riders are actually pictured draping their forearms over the handlebars, uh, which is of course banned now by the by the UCI, and we've seen some riders actually disqualified 
for that from from races earlier this year. Uh, it came in with that ban, which also outlawed the the super tuck position. Uh, of course, Carapaz actually got disqualified from the A's best on the A's for that, and uh, uh, getting down on his top tube there for what was it like two or three seconds, I think. Um, but so these dumb. two riders only got a warning; they they didn't get disqualified. Which, uh, yeah, I mean that's it's that's good. That's what should happen, right? Like disqualification is a big deal, particularly at the Tour de France or or Liège, like if that you know for Carapaz. I think they were trying to make an example of him, basically. But yeah, like. I'm okay. I, I think the rule is stupid, but if you're going to enforce it in this way, that's fine. And, and like the position is just not so. So Iran sort of had his arms on the tops, but then like his fingers kind of wrapped, like his pinky finger wrapped around the brake levers, basically. That I, I understand that this basically the rule requires that the only contact point be like your palm. You, can't, you just can't put your, el- your your forearms on the handlebars pretty much at all. And, and and herein lies the difficulty for the UCI. I think we've highlighted this in a previous podcast that a lot of riders now, they can put their hands fully on the brake levers, but still have their forearms on, on the on the handlebars because of, you know, just the, it's called that arrow hoods position where your your forearms basically vertical, so or horizontal, sorry. So it, part of it is technically speaking, touching the, the handlebar which, technically speaking, by the rules, is not allowed. Uh, and then what Iran has done is he, he hasn't draped his, his forearms over the center of the handlebars like a time trial position, which we've seen in the past, which is what the UCI were trying to trying to do away with. He has just, he's put his forearms almost in that same position on the on the outsides of the handlebars. And then instead of having his hands properly in the, in the, in the brake levers, He's got his hands sort of coming around the inside and wrapped around the front of the, of his brake levers, which, yeah, I, I don't really, I've, I've tried to do that myself a few times. My hands just don't want to do that. I nope. don't know why you would want to do that, but I can understand for for Iran, you know, this is the, the Tour de France, your, your full gas, you know, um, lack of oxygen going to the brain. You're not thinking clearly because you're trying to follow Tadej Pogacar, who is doing attacks while smiling. Uh, and it's just a natural reaction. These riders have been doing this for as long as they've been racing. And now all of a sudden it's, it's banned. So I'm happy to see that the UCI have, you know, have taken a sensible approach here and given the, the riders a, a warning. Uh, and yeah, hopefully they remember the warning when they go to take up that position the next time. Speaking of Rigo, uh, you had kind of a rough day today, right? Where, where? For the Iran fans out there, where is Rigo now? So he had a rough day, but he still came in the top 10 on the stage. He finished 149 down on Tadej Pogacar, uh, which means he has dropped off the podium, dropped down to fourth place at seven minutes and 17 seconds. So he's just under two minutes off the podium now, whereas starting the stage this morning, he was he was all, he was up in second place this morning so he was so uh yes a bad day is dropped dropped off the podium but we often see these things in in the final week of the tour riders can be up one day and and down the next or or vice versa i wouldn't be surprised to see iran trying to claw his way back onto the the podium tomorrow Uh, and then of course the time trial iran can pull off a pretty good time trial when he has to probably better than carapaz yes iran fans it's not over yet all is not lost. All right, let's let's wrap up today. 
Ceres has been around for a while, making trainers and more, and now they have created the Infinity Technology. That's N-finity technology. The first and only indoor training technology that adds multi-directional movement to stationary cycling. It features fore, aft, and side-to-side -side movement that mirrors outdoor riding. Adding movement stimulates the vestibular system, which makes indoor riding feel as it should. I don't know what the vestibular system is. Infinity technology reduces joint pressure, adding comfort to training so you can ride harder and longer. Ceres is driven to break down barriers between people and their bike. Infinity brings the joy of movement indoors. For more information, check out Ceres.com. That's Ceres.com. And I will say that having ridden one of these things, they're kind of sweet. Check it out. Thanks to Saris for sponsoring today's episode. We've got tomorrow to talk about. It is a big one. It is a big one. I, know, I said yesterday that I thought today was sort of the last opportunity for some for Pogacar to like crack, crack. And I still maintain that it was more likely today than it is tomorrow. But tomorrow is still a very, very hard stage. Before we get into the racing aspect, let's hear from Jose Bain. It's stage 18 and we are almost at the end of the Tour de France, but it's not a Tour de France if we're not in Pau. This is the 73rd time we are here. We had rest days and doping stories happening here. Just ask Frank Schleck or Michael Rasmussen or Alexander Vinukorov or Lance Armstrong with that famous 2001 press conference. But we also had heroic stages by our well-known René Fiatto. You remember the toe guy from week one? Or La Course with Mariana Vos two years ago. And it was also the place where Wout van Aert crashed so hard in that time trial two years ago that they feared his career would be over. But luckily, we now know better. After Bordeaux and of course Paris, Pau is the most visited town of the Tour de France. And they honor that by the Tour des Géants, which are statues to the glory of the winners of the Tour. Each of these totems features the name and photo of the winner of that year. The totems themselves are almost two meters high and form a permanent monument set in a green setting in the Bois Louis. And naturally, a new sculpture is added every year. On the route today, it's time for some solemn reflection, because after an hour of racing, we get to Lourdes, which is one of the most popular pilgrimage places in France and with that in Europe. Here it was that Bernadette Soubirou says she witnessed 18 apparitions of the Virgin Mary in 1858. And following the Virgin's indications, the little shepherd discovered a spring of water reputed to be miraculous. A total of 67 miraculous healings have been recognized at Lourdes since 1858. But there's one issue now. They hardly happen anymore. Well, not according to the Vatican rules. There only have been a few miracles in the past 45 years, and that's thanks to modern medicine. There are said to be thousands and thousands of other healings in the Lourdes files, but they do not meet the strict criteria laid down by the Vatican three centuries ago. Because Vatican rules demand that the illness healed must have been incurable and that the healing is sudden, instantaneous, complete and without any subsequent relapse. And a further demand lies at the root of the current problem of lack of miracles. Because the miraculously healed person 
must not have had any medical treatment or taken any medicine that can be shown to have been effective. However, many believers still feel encouraged and empowered to be at the site where the Virgin Mary is said to have shown herself. And for many, that's more than enough. And for the others, a visit to the wonderful Pyrenees is always great, no matter what you believe in. All right, Ronan. Come on stage. Lou's already done. Mm -hmm. this, this is a... I feel like this is a climb that has somewhat fallen out of fashion in the last few years. It's one that ended up in the tour quite a lot for, for many years. Uh, I think in particular sort of the 90s, 2000s for some reason. It's a bit, like I said, climbs come in and out of fashion. Uh, La Planche de Belfi is a perfect example. That climb was not really used much at all and then seems to find its way into, you know, every other Tour de France for the last five, six years. Lou's already done. We're back. Uh, hasn't been actually that long, but it's good to see the old monster back in the bike race. So what do we what do we got on tap for tomorrow? Uh, well, we have the stage as we just heard with the stage starting in in Po. It's hundred basically one hundred and thirty kilometers, uh, and much like today's stage, a lot of the or all of the big climbing is, is loaded into the back end of it. But it's a day that might favor a stronger breakaway getting away because we do have a couple of fourth category climbs near the start there's one uh, within the first 10 kilometers so we've actually got a fourth category climb so it's sort of a perfect launch pad for for a strong break to to force itself clear uh, and then yeah we've got two oars category climbs just to finish off the final mountain stage of, of this year's tour de france and we've got the legendary call de tourmalet taking the riders up to 2115 meters above sea level I'm, massive 17.1 kilometers 17.1 kilometers long over 10 miles of uphill uh, at an average of 7.3 percent uh, and the riders from there they they descend down to the bottom of Lourdes Ardiden uh, for the final 13 kilometer climb again very similar gradient average 7.4 percent um, but it is the final final uphill battle of, of this year's Tour de France the final big mountain of this year's Tour de France and with the two fourth category climbs early in the stage as I said a launch pad for the break to get away and I would expect to see the KOM contenders will have to get themselves into that that break tomorrow because with the Col de Tourmalet being an Orange category climb there is huge points on offer there uh, and then they climb to the finish again the Orange category should the breakaway make it to the finish tomorrow uh, those KOM contenders will, will they'll have to place themselves in, in that in that breakaway or at very least ensure that none of them are in the breakaway uh, so i'd expect to see those guys marking each other out and you know at least probably two of them or something making it into tomorrow's break it's a nasty one lose already done at the end there and and we haven't had a whole lot of uphill finishes in this tour de france today and tomorrow are two of three i believe in the entire tour so you know an uphill finish just means that well, there's just sort of more possibility of, of a crack staying cracked, right? You know, if you've got a whole descent to chase on, that can that can start to pull a race back together. It can also sometimes it can inspire attacks, but sometimes it can prevent them. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking back, like I said before, that it hasn't been used in a while. I think 2011 was the last time that that Luzardin was was used, but kind of its most famous moments probably came in, in the Armstrong era, actually won there in 2003 and used it 
more than once to kind of put his stamp on the race. And the uh, transition here to Tade Pogacar was not intentional <laughs> from Lance Armstrong to Tade Pogacar, but it's a, it, it's the kind of thing where uphill finishes inspire, uh, I think fear in, in the GC Peloton and the Peloton in general. And that means that a dominant GC rider like Pogacar, they can use them well. They can use them, the, they can use them to their advantage. They can use them to basically well, really just end the race, right? And and Pogacar didn't really today. He, he hit up at the very end of the stage, never really hit out like we were kind of expecting him to. And so I'm kind of thinking that he he grabs tomorrow and, and really goes for it. I think he comes across the line and loses it in with, with, a, with a sizable gap. Uh, particularly relative to today's little two-second gap, because he hasn't got a big enough gap already. No, I mean you want to <laughs> only win by f four or five minutes. That's that's nothing. I mean, uh, Bernardi. No, I think he won. Bernardi won his first tour by about four minutes, and his second tour by fourteen minutes, and then his third tour by thirteen minutes. Those two might have been backwards. I can't remember. Those thirteen. And then 14 or 14 and then 13. But either way, sizable gaps. <laughs> you know, and Pogacar's in his second tour, second tour de France now, second tour de France leader's jersey, uh, second defensive yellow. I mean, if he, it's it's 14 minutes or nothing as far as I'm concerned. We we keep talking about dynasties here. You wanna be you wanna be dynastic, you need he needs at least ten, right? I think you can get it tomorrow. Well, he's probably gonna take another minute in the time trail. <laughs> True. All right, so that puts him up to six. Mm -hmm. So he needs four minutes tomorrow. Wee bones. <laughs> I think at some point before the end of this tour, we are we're going to talk sort of like try to put Pogacar in perspective. I've just been, you know, there's a fair amount of history, uh, you know, like the 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 Bernardi no tidbits there, right? Like there's there's we're getting into real the real territory where we're, we're discussing dynasties and discussing like how many of these he can win is a reasonable thing to do we don't want to do that really before we get through the mountains because we got to get through the mountains but at some point in this week we do need to have that discussion so like where does Tadej Pogacar fit into the broader world and history of professional cycling and of the Tour de France uh I mean my, my the sort of short answer to that and again sort of get into this more later but the short answer to that is he's unusual but not unique right i mean sort of by definition the type of rider that is going to win multiple tours is going to be is going to be something special so anyway we'll get to that at the end of the race we got plenty of time to talk about that but we don't want to jinx the guy we don't want to be responsible for that uh and who knows something else could happen tomorrow so your pick for tomorrow Bogacha. That's my pick. I already made it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'll go for. I don't, I don't. I think I'm quite often just picking hard picks here, nearly every day. Yeah, I mean, rather than real head picks. You know, head picks are head picks are fun, uh, but the heart pick is just way better. Mm. Um. So head our our head picks are Pogacar. We got that much. What about hard so pick? Have you had a hard pick yet? No, I'll go after you. <laughs> well, then I will. I'm going to go for Mike Woods tomorrow. 
be great. Epic. That would be a good one. You know, the, the, the French haven't gotten a whole lot out of this Tour de France yet. Uh, and I think I made my heart pick for today was David Gadu. Um, he actually rode pretty well today. He rode, rode quite, he rode better today than he's ridden most of this Tour de France, but obviously did not win the stage. Uh, it does, he doesn't quite have enough time to like be given a huge lead in, in, a, in a breakaway. Uh, but I think they might give him some, and I think that he's riding well enough anyway that I think I think he could, I think he could do it. I'm, I'm gonna pick him two days in a row. Devin Gadu. Final thing, final thing, running. Uh, Miles Sabla update. Who, who's got it? Who might have it after tomorrow's decisive Luzardinen uphill finish? Well, who's got it hasn't changed. And really, Sergio Higita has. Wow maintained his leading disadvantage <laughs> in the Mayo Sabla, but he's moved from being exactly one hour, one minute and 19 seconds, I think it was yesterday, to one hour, two minutes and 18 seconds. Wow. Um, so he, he's- That's a good effort. And Bogomolema is currently at 55 minutes, so a oh. good chance of moving into the Mayo Sabla tomorrow. Uh, I think we have to look a little bit further ahead though to see who might have it in Paris because Sergio Inau is at now at 50 minutes, could be in the break tomorrow or could lose a bit of time tomorrow. I was going to say at this point in the race, yes, we should be looking at who's in the fifties really. <clears throat> but if a big old break goes tomorrow, could go the other way. Could be, could be someone who's, who's yeah, already over. Realistically though, we've only got Jonathan Castrovejo, Castroviejo who's at one hour and three minutes. So he's unlikely to be given the freedom to move up. No, uh, And then we've got Alejandro Valverde at the similar time, <gasps> one hour and three minutes. He's going to do it. But he's going to do it. Then the next place is at one hour and 14 minutes. Valverde. So huge 11 minute gap. Breakaway tomorrow. Valverde going to take back time so that he can slot himself in for the Mayo Sabla just in time. So he's three and a half minutes off the Mayo Sabla at the moment. How much time does he need to take tomorrow to, to still have the Mayo Sabla at the end of the time trial? I mean, he needs to be in the breakaway, and the breakaway needs to finish with like a five-minute advantage, mm. right? I, I would say at least he's, he's unlikely to go. Well, I mean, he, he is obviously going to go perfectly in the time trial to, <laughs> <laughs> to try to keep the Mayo Sabla. Like, I don't know. I don't know how to respond to that. <laughs> well, Verde perfection in the time trial. All right, we're gonna cut it off there. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Episode's a little bit different today. Hope you enjoyed it. And we will be back tomorrow for the final uphill finish of this Tour de France. Bye, everybody. <laughs>